This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Turn in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 12. And if you, um, I'll tell you, you can do this right now. You'll look really spiritual in a little bit when I say turn to Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 if you want to put, take the time right now. Basically, just go to Psalm, turn right, uh, Proverbs, you'll get there. And if you, know, if you get to Malachi, you've gone too far. Um, but we're going to be in Isaiah 6 as well. So actually right after I got married, so uh, Shannon and I moved to Atlanta in 1990-something and got my first job in the music business. Uh, I was a booking agent. And let me tell you, here are my qualifications for this job. I had a mullet. It was good, man. The perma mullet, where you permit in the back. It's the, we call it the Missouri Compromise. The, uh, <laughs> couldn't quite commit, so we compromised. Anyway, uh, I had earrings, plural. Can you imagine, my wife married me. That's why we had to get married fast, because I was afraid she's going to come to her senses. Uh, so I had a mullet, earrings, and that was kind of it, actually. Really the only qualifications. But now I'm a booking agent. And the first band that I, I got to book uh, were, it wasn't even really a band. It was two acoustic guitar players, a keyboard player, uh, and a singer. Now, DJ, you know, that's not a band. We're missing some players. Uh, we needed some others, but nobody else wanted them, so I got to book them, and they, it was called Jars of Clay. It was this, I know, they're in their mom's minivan until they dropped the transmission and had to get someone else's minivan. But, so that was my job, and my job was literally to get my legal pad, and I was on phone sales all day long. Uh, but in the meantime, I, the company I'm working for is called Vanguard Entertainment. Uh, a guy named Chuck Tilly owned it, and he also owned a festival called Atlanta Fest. And... One of the things that uh, you get when you work in music is uh, just a lot of junk. A lot of people send you things, like we had a, a cardboard life-size cutout of, of Carmen, um, with the Satan bite the dust era, you know what I'm saying? We, I think we had an Al Denson one as well. Uh, we had CDs that nobody else wanted. It was just full in this storage facility of stuff. And so I wanted to help my boss because I'm young, I'm, I'm, I'm ambitious, and I want him to know that I'm, I'm going to kick butt and take names, I'm going to be his guy, you know? So I go in on a Saturday in the summer to clean the, the storage facility out. Now, Atlanta in the summer, has anybody been there in the summer? Oh, it's the same thing, Texas. Actually, Houston's even the worst. Like, so, yeah, imagine cleaning out a storage facility that was inside somebody's mouth. swampy and dank and and I'm sweating and I'm working and I'm so proud and the people that were in charge of that would have had to have done that when I get on on Monday they were like man that's awesome you're thank you so much for doing that but that's not who I wanted to hear it from I wanted to hear it from my boss I wanted him to know that I'm a team player that I, I'll get it done you know and so imagine my surprise when Chuck said, you did what? He could not have been more underwhelmed with my decision of how I spent my Saturday. And I thought at the time, well, it kind of hurt my feelings. But what he 
didn't say clearly, but what he meant was, look, I'm, I've hired you to be a rainmaker. Like when you're on the phone, you make money for the company. When you're in a storage facility on a Saturday, you are spending money for the company. So I'd rather if you're going to work on a Saturday, do, do your job on Saturday. And even though the people in the company were giving me praise, the guy that signed the check was like, DT, man, I need you to do your job that I hired you to do. Whatever the praise of the people of the company, it's the praise of the boss that I needed the most. And in John 12, where Jesus is now, this is going to be his last sermon that he is ever going to preach to a group. We are, I think, at T minus four days to crucifixion at this point. Okay, he, the weight of him, in fact, at one point it says, and he cried out in a loud voice. This is it. This is his last hurrah before crucifixion. He's going to, of course, be with his disciples. He's going to have conversations with individuals. But this is the last time in front of a group of people. And the Pharisees, these Jews, and it, it starts uh, what we just, uh, just skipped over, that even after he performed many signs, uh, verse 37, in their, in their presence, they still didn't believe He's like, I'm doing these miracles and I still didn't believe. And then, like I said, in verse 44, and then he cries out, whoever believes in me, right, uh, does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. He is like just trying to convince them that he is who he said he was. But in, tucked in the middle of that, in verse 42, is what I want you to see. And that is that Jesus, verse 42, at the same time, Many among the leaders did believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. They loved the praise of everybody except the one who signed the check, who signed the deal. They wanted that praise more than his praise, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Heavenly Father, in your word is where we find light. In your word is where we find illumination for our paths. And I ask for you tonight, Holy Spirit, to speak to each of us the word that you have from this word. It is still alive. It is still two-edged and still slices between the the spirit and the soul. And tonight, Boy, we want some of that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. (laughs) I don't know, that hit a little close to home, didn't it? (laughs) Um like my need to be praised, looking for the attaboy. Did you know that God has an attaboy for you, for me? Like that God actually, we we just praised him, right? But God will praise you. It's a a mind-blowing thought that the God of the universe Right, who sneezes stars. Like he sees you 
and will praise you. But there are things that we spend our lives on over here doing the job in the, in the storage facility, a job he didn't ask us to do, a job he didn't want us to do, because it's not what he's called you to do. And I would ask you tonight as we just have these few minutes together to examine your own hearts. Are there things in your life that you're doing for the praise of men, for the praise of other humans, instead of for the praise of God? And by the way, sometimes the things that get us praised for, as humans by humans is something that God would praise us for, but if you're doing it to get praise from the humans and not for the praise of God, there's just as big of a ditch to fall in. But in our current cultural moment, there are many things that we do that we won't do or won't say or will say or will say, you know, because we're afraid of what others will think or what they'll do to us. And what we really are most afraid of is that they'll stop praising us. What are things in our lives that we're doing for the praise of men and not for the praise of God? And when I think about what that is, there's a moment where you could get under a bunch of bondage, a bunch of works. If I just suck it up, pull myself up by the bootstraps, then I can work really hard and God will praise me for that. And can I just disabuse you of that notion for the evening? Because if you start with the work you're already off to the wrong, you've literally taken the wrong exit. But if we start with seeing his glory, seeing his light, seeing his sacrifice, out of that comes our desire to live for the praise of God. If we start with the works, we're gonna exhaust ourselves, we're gonna be what Paul calls being weary and well-doing. But if we start with these ideas, and I'm going to show you in the passage that we're in where, the, where this plays out, in, in living in his glory, right? Seeing it, living, seeing his light, living and seeing his sacrifice. Out of that, the only, the only response is, here I am, Lord, send me, right? So it's, if we start with this, the natural out flow of it is a response as opposed to starting with trying to be obedient and hoping to see his glory. We start with seeing his glory and obedience grows out of that. So what do I mean when I say seeing his glory? Isaiah verse 41 said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. What on earth does he mean by that? The verse is right before. Tell us. Uh, John is saying that the reason that they don't believe, the reason these people are here they don't believe was because it was prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah that they would, uh, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter six. Now, if you would, would you turn with me to Isaiah six? Remember, you guys look real spiritual because you've already turned there. You're feeling pretty spiritual right now, aren't you? Isaiah 6. I've got the whole chapter up here, though we're not going to read it, but I want you to be able to see it all in its context. But Isaiah chapter 6 is a moment in Israel's history where there's a guy named King Uzziah. King Uzziah is actually this very successful king. The country has prospered under his watch. He has built up their military. It is a, it, Judah is as strong as it's ever been under King Uzziah. 
And unfortunately, what happens when a country becomes strong, becomes prosperous, they also become wicked and disobedient, and we don't need God anymore. Literally, the history of Israel plays out over and over and over again, and I don't know if you've looked around town lately, but it seems kind of familiar, doesn't it? A country that is, so far, we've still got a strong military, so far, we've still got strong financial standing, so far, and our country has become as wicked as it has ever been, that I, as far as I can remember in modern times or historical times, because of our... So that's where Israel is right here. And so Uzziah, by the way, at the end of his life, after being a good king and a prosperous country, by the end of his life, he himself even falls. He actually goes into the temple. He does uh, sacrifices. He puts incense on the altar, which was a gigantic no-no, and ends up being stricken with leprosy and ends up living his, the last part of his life alone and in isolation because leprosy was extraordinarily contagious. But in this moment, when he dies... Isaiah chapter 6, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, God appears to Isaiah. So again, the country is actually prosperous right now. The country seems to be going, if you're not a follower of Jehovah, seems like we're doing pretty good. And he says to Isaiah, I need somebody to go and tell Israel that judgment is coming. And they would have received Isaiah the same way they receive you or I when we speak the truth today, which is to say, not very well. You're going, he's going to literally risk his life to say yes to this calling. But what does God do? God doesn't just show up and say to Isaiah, hey man, I need you to get your crap together because I got a job for you. No, he shows up and, and literally appear like shows his glory to him what does verse 41 say of john chapter 12 he showed him the glory of jesus and it says that the glory above him he saw let's start with verse one i saw the lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphim each with six wings and with two wings they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and the other two were flying and they were calling out to one another holy holy is the lord god almighty he literally punched a hole in the space time and continuum punches a hole into the spirit dimension to show him that all this that's going on on the earth is not what's going on there is a bigger picture and what does what does Isaiah do when he's in front of a holy God? By the way, verse 41 of John chapter 12 says they showed him the glory of Jesus. And here it says, Lord Almighty, Jehovah is who he's seeing. You know why that is? Because Jehovah is Jesus. For your Jehovah Witness friends who say that Jesus is a prophet or whatever, they say that he wasn't God, there is no Trinity. This is one example that you can show them that here is Jesus in the New Testament being referred to as Jehovah by the writers of the New Testament. That's totally free. You don't have to pay any extra for that for the night. 100% money back guarantee. That said, he shows him his glory of who he is, the magnitude of who God is. And the only response to that is I'm undone. 
Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm in a country of unclean lips. Interesting, by the way, that he speaks specifically of the uncleanness in his mouth. Language is extraordinarily important. There's a reason why the enemy wants to play with language and change the meaning of words because words are important. I'm a man of unclean lips. It starts with what was coming out of his mouth. And then God, it says there's a hot coal that he presents to him and he's going to put it in his mouth. Fascinating vision, right? And it wasn't to punish him, but it was to purify him. And in that moment, it says that God made atonement for Isaiah's sin. Isaiah did not make atonement for his sin, but God made atonement for his sin. And back to John chapter 12, verse 41. By the way, the the passages following this, him seeing his glory and speaking about him, Isaiah is full of the prophecies of who Jesus was going to be, the prophecies of who Jesus is. Him responding to the glory of God changed the world. And back in John chapter 12, verse 41, he saw his glory and spoke about him. I, my brothers and sisters, would love you to consider the fact that if you have not yet been bold enough to speak about him in a culture that is hatred toward him, it's not because you're a bad person. You just haven't seen the glory of God. You haven't encountered his glory yet. And that's not a shameful thing. That's an invitation thing. Go to his glory. You know, people make fun of me because, um, well, in some ways it's, it's well-earned because I'm somewhat of a, a, a nerd. I don't know. How many were here uh, on the Saturday night service of Easter? Only like, okay, well, actually more than you think. Okay, so remember those like three videos I showed or whatever, and, and I was so fascinated by them all, and, and, and I asked Mo afterward, hey, man, what'd you think? You know, what's you? And he said, well, Darren, I, I felt like you could get to the point a little bit quicker, if I'm being honest. And my wife uh, enthusiastically agreed. Uh, it's Easter, man. What are you doing? You're showing like science videos on Easter. And, I, and guilty is charged, so we didn't show them on Sunday. But what I get excited about is that when you look at the glory of God, like the galaxies that span beyond, the, the, the telescopes that are out there right now, they're showing like this little spot of light. And it's not a spot of light, Gus. It's like a galaxy. There are billions of not stars, but of galaxies. God called all of that into existence. The vastness of it is so mind-blowing. And so he's infinitely large, which means he's powerful enough to solve your problems. And then at the micro, right, which is what we talked about on Easter, which was that at the very core, the DNA of like inside of you is this code. And in this double helix code, the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, the name of God is literally written on your DNA. Eternity is written on your heart, quite literally. Like that's the glory of God. That night when you heard that, the code, like the gasp in this room was the gasp of looking at the glory of God. The glory of God is his purpose, his meaning. Everything in the universe 
is because of him. The, the large Hadron Collider that is in Switzerland that they have spent hundreds of billions of dollars digging this trench miles around. I know RJ must know about this and others in here, but like they've spent, I mean, I remember like when they started building this, they're like, they're going to punch a hole in the universe. They're going to create a black hole on earth. But you know what it is they're looking for? You know what they call it? Not, they, they, they call it the Higgs boson, but you know what they call it? The God particle. Hundreds of billions of dollars to find the God particle because even scientists know that there's something at the core of all of this that is holding it all together. That's the glory of God. And when you look at that and know what Isaiah sees is that this country, well, I'm going to get in here and I'm going to make this big mess, but the problem is, is that this world isn't all there is. There's this other world out there. There's this God who is high. He is seated on the throne. He is vast and he is powerful. And because of that, he will speak about him. And if you can encounter, spend your energy, spend your time encountering the glory of God, the presence of God, that you will just automatically speak about him. You don't have to spend it in like, I'm shaming myself into this. Spend your time looking into the glory of God and it's just the automatic response. In addition to that, seeing his light. We've seen his glory, his power, his majesty, his, that he's everywhere and holds it all together, but also in seeing his light. In verse 42, back in John 12, he refers to himself over and over again, as light. Throughout John, by the way, he's referring to himself over and over again in that way. He, verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You, you notice what he didn't say. Uh, you're going to fall into darkness without me, right? He's saying you'll be, you are in darkness, that this world is darkness without me. There is no light in this world that isn't me. Darkness is a metaphor that we know very well. Modern era, if you see a film, a Quentin Tarantino film, you would say, man, that's a dark, dark movie. I, I tried to watch one on a plane once and I felt like I needed a shower. I don't know what I mean, like a half hour into it. I'm like, wow, that's dark, right? The, the, which is when we use the word dark, we're referring to evil, Hannibal Lecter, that's dark. That's the word we use when we discuss evil. And it's the word we use when we're trying to refer to something that is without hope. If, if you're in a struggling time, if you've had depression, you refer to that as, as darkness. If, if you're in that struggle, and, but you see that there's hope, you'll say that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Darkness is the hopeless, light is the hope. And what Jesus is saying, is with him being light, is that this world does not have the tools inside of it to have a foundation for hope or the tools to deal with evil. That's the claim of being light. And any scientist, any like, atheist, humanist would have to at some point admit that we don't have the tools inside of of science to accomplish this. And why do I say science in particular? Because over the years we've tried things like philosophy, like the arts, and they always come up short, political. But recently, 
in the last few decades especially, we've now held science as the ultimate light. Has anyone seen um, or read the book Merchants of Doubt? Wow, that's embarrassing. I'll tell you this, this is the first time this has ever happened. All three services, nobody, no one has read this book and no one has seen this documentary. That's why it's so lonely, Shannon. Like nobody, (laughs) you married a dork. (laughs) Merchants of Doubt was written in 2015 and it was a, a book that was going back through history and showing how these giant corporations big tobacco being one, big pharma being another, how they would overlook the truth in order to make money. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the CEO of Moderna just got a $400 million bonus this year, so that's, that's clearly not stopped yet. So obviously that was about saving lives. But anyway, um, Merchants of Doubt was saying that these evil corporations have to be stopped and science is going to be our savior. That was the story, and sounded good. The author of Merchants of Doubt, there were two of them, in 2020, went full-blown, if you don't get this experimental treatment that we're disguising as a vaccine, then you are going to kill your neighbors. If you don't put a mask on, you're going, they went full-blown, follow the science, the science is the light. They, 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 that was the, ca- the case they were making. The, the ones that wrote Merchants of Doubt who held science as the light are now in the darkness themselves. And by the way, I, I went to their website last week just to see um, New York Times article just this week. Um, Dr. Fauci, it said out loud, admitted that masks worked about 10%. That he just said that out loud and, and acted like that. He didn't say, you know what I'm saying? Like, the light that we had three years ago was darkness because he's even saying, yeah, 10%. We, we, we shut the schools. Actually, what he said was, we didn't shut the school. I didn't shut the schools down. I'm like, do you, do you not know that we have the internet? Are you not familiar that we remember? Like, we were, I'm old enough to remember that. But point being that, not just to bash on him, although a little bit, um, that was the light, and it turned out it was dark. It didn't work. Because we were trying to deal, and here's, I'll tell you why. I mean, let me tell you why. This is what Einstein said. Science can only ascertain what is, but not what should be. And outside of its domain, value judgments of all kinds remain necessary. What he is saying is this. Science can tell you that there is a virus called COVID-19. Science cannot tell you what you should or should not do about it because that is now a moral judgment, not a scientific judgment. Taking this vaccine to save lives was what we were told. That, taking the vaccine, there's a medical thing they're saying, but now they're making it a moral thing. And a moral thing is to save lives. That is not science, that is morality. And which is why back in the, especially in the 2000s, when I was being told, well, you're, you're not a scientist, you're not allowed to talk about this. And I'm like, well, they're not a pastor, they're not allowed to talk about morality. Because they might have known everything about epidemiology and they knew absolutely nothing about the human soul. Right? So you're, they're conflating morality and science and science, Einstein said, and by the way, Stephen Jay Gould, multiple scientists over the years have come to this conclusion, including Bertrand Russell. This is not a new idea. Russell is an atheist philosopher that 
is very well uh, received in those circles. And this is what Russell said, uh, I think this is in the 30s, maybe the 40s, that man is the product of causes which had no provision. In other words, if man is just an accident of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. Random selection. As as an atheist, he's saying, if that's all we are, he goes on to say, then then there's no heroism. There's no hope. There's no love. There's no... And he, he ends up this essay saying that only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the, listen to this, on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. In other words, only if we admit nihilism, then we can build a foundation because that's the truth. If there is no God, if there's no light from the outside poking in, then this is the logical conclusion. The stars are going to fall. The earth is going to destroy itself at some point. Everyone you've ever known, everything you've ever done, everyone you've ever loved will all be forgotten. There is no hope. That's the unyielding hope he's talking about. And that's what science has to offer us without Jesus. There is no basis for hope without Jesus. And there's no basis, no tools for dealing with evil without Jesus. One of the best cases made for this was from Martin Luther King. Yes, you're about to have a sermon where Michael Scott and Martin Luther King Jr. are going to be quoted in the same sermon. You're welcome. Martin Luther King, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, white ministers were writing to him saying, why are you disobeying these laws? Why are you causing this trouble? Why won't you just get in line? Romans 13, Romans 13, Romans 13. And Dr. King said, what is the difference between the two? And he's talking about a moral law and an unjust law and an unjust law. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral code or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. He's saying what Jesus said, which is, I am the light of the world. Without... Jesus, without God, how do we know that a law is just or unjust? The reason we have set 400 families free from slavery is because in Asia, their law says that it is okay to enslave people. They're doing it fully legally within their legal system. We are freeing them within their legal system. Is that a just law or an unjust law? 100% unjust. That's why we would risk our lives, even circumvent their system. When I say 100% within their laws, what I mean is paying for their freedom. Us paying for their freedom, 100% violation of their laws. Our pastors over there serve at great risk to their own lives personally. And you know why they can do it? Because they can look at that law and even though their culture, everyone around them says they're crazy. 
But Jesus, 2 Timothy, when it talks about who will not inherit the kingdom of God, idolaters, talks about these different sins, sexual sins. One of them, enslavers. Those who own slaves will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you hear someone say that the Bible condones slavery, they're full of crap. Enslavers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So do we obey the laws of Asia or the laws of God? In our own country, our laws right now are moving in many places saying that a young person can be surgically mutilated because of their gender. That is an unjust and an immoral law. It might be legal in man's law, but it is abhorrent in the eyes of God. Amen. And when it comes to seeing the light, it can illuminate in our own lives. It's easy to make it about big picture stuff. We, we zoom it in a little bit. Can I just say this to Chris? I don't know everybody here, and it's the Sunday night, so I don't know if, oh, I don't know. Maybe someone will get mad at me. I don't know anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I want you to like me, you know? <laughs> if you put your personal pronouns in your social media file or in your email account, are you doing that for the praise of God or for the praise of man? If God created them male and female, male and female, he created them. But I've got to say, he, they, she, I mean, I'm not even using proper grammar anymore, but like if I have to change that, is that, is God going to praise me for that? Or is that just so that someone else on the other side can praise me for that? And look, there's plenty of it. There's plenty of this to go around for all of us. We live in middle Tennessee, I've been told this, and it's really true. I could live a whole lot simpler if my neighbors would. <laughs> I've never wanted a golf cart in my life. That's all I want now. Actually, what I really want is a Jeep. But I keep looking at Jeeps on like, Facebook Marketplace, and every one I love is owned by like a 17-year-old kid from like Lewisburg, and I'm like, maybe I need to grow up. Like, if, if that's what I want, it's all 17-year-olds, but I really want a Jeep. But I really want a golf cart because my neighbors have golf carts. But you know what? I can't afford a golf cart. But if I do that for the praise of men, because I get to look like one of the cool guys in the neighborhood, and I know that sounds silly, but in our lives, we're all there's things that we do for the praise of man that is not for the praise of God. And it's complicated sometimes, but most times it's really simple. And that's just look at the word and what does Jesus say? And if I look at his light and let his light, he will inform my decisions. He will illuminate my choices and it's not going to be illuminated by the culture. And what we've seen with Jesus, John the Baptist, Isaiah, and in modern times as well, most of the time, 95, well, I don't know, maybe 99% of the time, a choice to follow Jesus is a choice to be rejected by the culture. And it just is. And we better get used to that because otherwise we're living for the praise of men. There's a reason why 70% of people in America right now are afraid to say out loud what they think or they believe. And by the way, of that 70% of people in America, 80 to 90% of those are actually, of that 70% are, are Christian conservative values because they're the ones that are going to get the most hate online. So it's those that are being quiet. He used to call them the silent majority. There's something else that Jesus would, would say to them right now, which is don't be cowards. 
instead of letting doctors cut them off, we got to grow a pair. It's mo at conduitchurch.com. <laughs> it's fun at the 5 p.m., isn't it? <laughs> they can't fire me. I don't even work here. <laughs> um, see his glory, see his light, and see his sacrifice. This is the last thing, and then I'm going to get you home. Isaiah saw Jesus and that coal that made atonement for his sin. Isaiah could not make an atonement for his own sin, and neither can you, and neither can I. And Jesus, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to the, judge the world, but to save the world. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten Son, Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, in this coming, in this moment, did not come with a spear in his hand. He came for a spear to be shoved into his side. It says that the spear was in his side and that blood and water flowed from his side. The cleansing of our sins, the pericardial fluid in his heart burst and flowed from his side, speaking of what he was doing for us, which was washing us clean. You see, if there is no such thing as judgment, this speaks of judgment, there is going to be a judgment. Without judgment, this world is in grave danger. By the way, only Westerners, for, as far as I can tell, I've only encountered Westerners who are uncomfortable with the idea of judgment because all of us assume that we got it figured out. You don't have anybody over in Asia debating judgment or thinking that judgment is bad because if you have been abused, if you have been marginalized, if you have been persecuted, judgment is the one thing that allows you to put down your sword, to turn the other cheek and trust that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Judgment is good news for the world and unfortunately, it is bad news for me. If there is a judgment, it's good news for the world and bad news for me. If there is no judgment, which is why Westerners love it so much, it is good news for me because I don't have to get judged, right? Even though it's bad news for the world. But in Christ, judgment is good news for the world and good news for me because Jesus came to bear that judgment for me so that those who would believe on him, I am being judged in Christ on the cross. He bore the sins of the whole world, First John says. Not just my sins, but the sins of the whole world. He bore those sins, and so that means it's good news for me. It's good news for you who believe, and it's good news for the world because those who would reject him, those who wouldn't, there is a, a judgment coming for those who would reject him that would say, there's basically two prayers you can pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, or my kingdom come, my will be done, and that's it. 
And I pray that everyone in this room and with the sound of my voice that our prayer is and continues to be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we see that kind of a sacrifice, there's only one response, and it's the response of Isaiah in chapter 6. Who will go? Who will tell them? Who will have the courage to speak? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. When I see his glory and I see his light, I can see that his hope and that he has the tools to deal with evil. I see his glory. He's holding the whole thing together anyway. And when I see his sacrifice and the price that he paid, then I can say that that here I am, send me. Not out of a burden, not out of a bummer, but out of this great, tremendous privilege to get to be sent by him. The one who has called the universe into being is calling you into service Can you say, here I am, send me, live for the praise of God and not for the praise of man?